The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. This is Jacob Yasser Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. I would like to introduce our editorial board member, Dr. Nathan Sim of the Section of Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine at the Veterans Affairs Hospital in Washington, D.C. He is an assistant professor of medicine at George Washington University and conducts translational research on biomarkers of inflammation and coagulation in ARDS and sepsis. Welcome, Dr. Sim. Thanks, Yasha. In today's podcast, Dr. Greet Hermans and Dr. Margaret Herridge join me to discuss a new study describing acute outcomes as well as one-year mortality in patients with ICU-acquired weakness. Dr. Hermans' manuscript regarding acute outcomes and one-year mortality of ICU-acquired weakness is accompanied by two editorials, one by Dr. Herridge and her colleagues, as well as another by Dr. Sylvie Chevre, specifically discussing the method of propensity matching analysis utilized in Dr. Hermann's paper. All three are published in the August 15, 2014 American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Hermann's is Associate Professor of Medicine in the Medical Intensive Care Unit, the Department of General Internal Medicine of the University Hospitals, Leuven, Belgium as well as the Laboratory of Intensive Care Medicine in the Division of Cellular and Molecular Medicine, Leuven, Belgium. Dr. Herridge is scientist in the Division of Experimental Therapeutics, Respiratory and Critical Care at the Toronto General Research Institute, a co-principal investigator in the Recover Program in Outcomes and Rehabilitation After Critical Illness, and professor in the Department of Medicine, the University of Toronto. I'd like to start the podcast with a question for Dr. Ehrman. Your group prospectively evaluated a group of patients from a randomized controlled trial for outcomes related to ICU-acquired weakness. Could you please describe for our listeners how you designed this study? Thank you, first of all, very much for this invitation to participate in this discussion today. It's a real pleasure for me. Our group has had an interest in the neuromuscular complications of critical illness for a long time and we previously studied several aspects hereof. Now, one of the intriguing findings concerning ICU-acquired weakness is its strong association with multiple organ failure. And so from this perspective, it's not surprising that several observational trials found that ICU-acquired weakness was associated with worse short-term outcomes, although this relationship was not confirmed by some other researchers. And so it remains unclear whether ICU-acquired weakness is just a marker or actually a mediator of poor prognosis. And in the current study, we try to determine the actual impact of weakness on acute outcomes. But we were also interested in the impact beyond hospitalization, more particularly in one-year mortality. And in addition, we also aim to assess its impact on healthcare-related and hospital costs. And so finally, we also wanted to examine the impact of the persistence and severity of weakness at the end of the ICU stay on one-year mortality. And to answer all of these questions, we systematically and prospectively screened a large cohort of ICU patients for the development of ICU-acquired weakness. And indeed, all the patients that we studied were actually included in the PANIC trial, 
So this was a large randomized controlled trial that included 4,640 patients, and it examined the impact of early versus late PM in critically ill patients. For this pre-planned sub-analysis, we selected patients who stayed in ICU for at least eight days because we considered these patients at increased risk for developing ICU-acquired weakness. And so all these long-stay patients were systematically screened for awakening and cooperation on fixed time points, which was three times weekly. And for this purpose, we used five standard commands, as previously described by Bernard de Jonge and co-workers. And if patients correctly responded to all five commands, then we tested muscle strength using the MRC sum score. Now, this is a score that evaluates six muscle groups of the upper and lower limbs bilaterally, and each of these is appointed a score between zero, which means that there is no contraction at all, and five, which indicates normal muscle strength. So when added, the maximum score will be 60. And we diagnosed weakness using the cutoff of 48, as was also previously described. And so we collected MRC sum score data in a total of 415 long-stay patients. And next, we selected a group of weak and not weak patients from this population that were matched in a one-to-one ratio for all kinds of potential confounders, including baseline characteristics, illness severity, and ICU exposures prior to the measurement of the MRC sum score. And so we obtained 122 unique pairs of weak and not weak patients that were well balanced for all the confounders that we investigated, and subsequently we compared the outcomes in this matched subgroup. Thank you, Dr. Ehrmans, for describing that. I'd like to follow up with you just regarding a couple of points. First of all, could you describe some specifics regarding the study population, for example, were they in surgical ICUs, medical ICUs, where were they being treated? Secondly, you mentioned the MRC score. Could you specifically tell us how weakness was measured based on the MRC score? And finally, I think one thing that's of interest and very challenging in this sort of work was the ability to measure or know with surveys or or telephone calls with families if, if patients had any baseline weakness. So the majority of patients were admitted to the surgical ICU. We had 28% of patients that were admitted following cardiac surgery. We had 47% urgent admissions for complications after other surgery or burns or trauma. We had 3% of patients that were admitted electively after surgery. And we had 21% admissions to the medical ICU. Concerning your question on the MRC sum score, so what we actually did, as previously described, we measured six muscle groups of the upper and the lower limbs bilaterally. That means that we evaluated abduction of the arm, flexion of the forearm, extension of the wrist, flexion of the hip, extension of the knee, and also dorsal flexion of the foot. And all of these muscle groups were scored between zero and five. So zero means that there is no contraction at all. One means that there is visible or palpable contraction, but there is no limb movement. A score of two means that there is limb movement, but only with gravity eliminated. A score of three means that limb movement is possible against gravity, but not against resistance. 
and the score of 4 means that there is subnormal contraction against resistance, while a score 5 indicates normal muscle strength. So when we add all of these subscores, then we get the MRC sum score, and if this score is below 48, then we diagnose patients with ICU-acquired weakness. Unfortunately, we were not able to determine baseline muscle weakness because the majority of our patients are admitted urgently to the ICU, and so unfortunately, we cannot assess muscle weakness prior to the admission in the ICU. So no, we don't have any data on that. We did, however, exclude patients with known neuromuscular disease, so these were not entered in this trial. Thank you for that detailed explanation of your study design. Now, Dr. Herridge, I'd like to ask you about what was measured. And I think one of the challenges in this type of research is you know, finding appropriate definitions. And as I understand it, there's still some disagreement on how to best diagnose ICU-acquired weakness. So I'd ask your opinion on the use of a, of a threshold value on the MRC score to define weakness. Thanks very much. And first, I would like to sincerely congratulate Dr. Hermans and uh, Dr. Vandenberg and their group on a really outstanding contribution to our literature and a very important contribution to our literature despite inevitable limitations, which of course affect even the most uh, important studies. To get to your question, there is no doubt that the Medical Research Council's score to evaluate weakness has been used to a great extent for many years now and throughout our critical care outcomes literature. It's a helpful and useful score, and it does, as Dr. Hermans indicated, evaluate important muscle groups for weakness. There are, however, important challenges and limitations to the use of the Medical Research Council score, and while this doesn't nullify its relative contribution, I think it's important to recognize limitations to inform us about how best to move this field forward and perhaps entertain other adjunctive measures to help understand better how the weakness captured by MRC maps onto patient-centered outcomes. There are a number of researchers who have looked at Medical Research Council score for weakness, including members of our own critical care community and increasingly interprofessional collaborators, particularly in physical therapy and rehabilitation sciences. This emerging literature indicates that there are challenges with the MRC score with respect to its relative responsiveness and some concerns related to the ceiling effect of the score itself. Because patients have to be cooperative and we are assuming maximally cooperative, there is also the relative concern or limitation that effort may be an important relative confounder to the results that we're able to capture with the Medical Research Council score. The MRC score may not be as integrative as some other outcome scores, and I would emphasize that that doesn't negate the importance of MRC, but it's really 
I think, an opportunity or a gateway to more discussion about other integrative measures that we can evaluate to understand how MRC relates to these. For example, the six-minute walk distance, which this group has also looked at, again, is a more integrative measure and may be related to the Medical Research Council score. But it has its own limitations in terms of lack of applicability to those patients who are unable to walk. The six-minute walk test may be more objective measure, but is it really going to help us understand the spectrum of disability that many patients who survived critical illness will sustain related to many very basic activities of daily living? Thank you for that, Dr. Harridge. So, Dr. Aramanza, I wanted to get into uh, something you described, the matching scores. Your group used propensity score matching to compare, as you mentioned, the subgroup of weak versus non-weak patients. I think that's an interesting way to do this as opposed to the multivariate regression you often see. And I wonder if you could provide some insight on, on why your group decided to use this method. Yes, absolutely. So indeed, we use propensity score matched subgroups to study the impacts of ICO-acquired weakness on outcomes. A propensity score is the probability of exposure or treatment given the presence of certain covariates. And in our particular situation, the propensity scores that we calculated and matched on reflect the probability of being weak given certain covariates, which included baseline characteristics, illness severity, and risk factor exposure in the RCU. Now, propensity score matching is a method that is frequently used in observational studies to estimate effects if randomization is not possible because it's more effective to reduce bias than multivariate regression. So multivariate regression tends to inflate effects in observational studies, especially when the number of prognostic factors is high and there is insufficient overlap of covariates between groups. Propensity score matching, however, allows the inclusion of a larger number of potential confounders. So for our research question on the actual impact of weakness on outcomes, of course also randomization was not possible. And by using propensity score matching, we try to get as close as possible to causal inferences. So just as a follow-up, I wanted to clarify, so what were the percentage of the total number of awake patients who were in the ICU on day eight that were in the match sample as opposed to the patients that you were unable to match? And were there any differences between the match patient subgroup from the remaining patients who were not matched? So the total amount of patients that we evaluated for MRC sum score after eight days in the ICU was 415, and the matched sample consisted of 122 unique matched pairs. So this means that 105 out of 227 weak patients, that is 46% of the weak patients, were not matchable to not weak patients, and indeed these weak patients that could not be matched significantly differed from those who did get matched because the unmatched weak patients were clearly sicker. They had significantly more exposure to known risk factors for weakness in the ICU, but these patients also clearly had even worse acute outcomes and also total build costs were higher. 
So actually, by performing this matching procedure, we eliminated the sickest weak patients with the worst outcomes from our analysis, and therefore, this actually is a very conservative approach towards the impact of weakness on outcomes. I will note for our listeners that there is a separate editorial discussing the issues specifically related to propensity score matching in this issue of the Blue Journal for the benefit of of readers wanting to learn more about this. So then, Dr. Ehrmanns, let's get to the findings of your study. Your group found several important differences, both in the acute setting and in the one-year outcome between the weak and non-weak subgroups. Could you please tell us what you found? Indeed, we did find important differences. So first of all, before matching, we found that weak patients clearly had worse acute outcomes, higher healthcare-related costs, and worse one-year outcomes as compared to not weak patients. But as expected, there were large imbalances in baseline characteristics as well as other risk factors for the development of weakness between both groups. So to study the actual contribution of weakness towards outcomes, we analyzed the matched population. And this resulted in some very intriguing findings. So first of all, we found that at any time, long-stay patients with weakness had a lower likelihood for being alive and weaned from mechanical ventilation, for being alive and discharged from the ICU and from the hospital. We did not find any significant difference between the weak and the not weak patients concerning ICU and hospital mortality rates, but we found that one-year mortality was significantly higher in the weak as compared to the not weak patients. We also found that total billed costs for the hospitalization were 30.5% higher for weak patients as compared to not weak patients. We further found that among the weak long-stay patients, the risk for death one year after ICU admission depended on the persistence and the severity of weakness at ICU discharge. Concerning functional impact, we found a shorter distance walked in six minutes at hospital discharge that became apparent after imputation of poor scores for patients in whom new physical or mental impairment precluded evaluation. And this was also further confirmed in a post hoc analysis of the discharge destination. This showed clearly different proportions of patients being discharged to a rehabilitation unit, other hospital, or being discharged home in weak patients as compared to not weak patients. Thank you for that description. Dr. Herridge, I'd like to follow up with you. Uh, obviously, this type of research is very challenging. So what are some of the limitations of the current study? And, and also to follow up, Dr. Ehrmanns mentioned earlier that the, most of the patients were from the surgical ICU. In, in your opinion, are there certain subgroups of critically ill patients for which the study findings may not be applicable? Thank you very much. I really appreciated Dr. Hermann's uh, comments and, again, the great lengths that they went to methodologically with their propensity matching score. Again, to underscore that uh, none of these methods are without limitation. Uh, They clearly were very rigorous in wanting to understand and eliminate potential confounders in their analysis. Our group does a lot of longitudinal outcomes work as well, and there's no question that there are always limitations related to this work. And they're unavoidable, but they don't diminish the impact of the work. Some important study limitations that uh, we mentioned in our editorial 
included combining groups that were randomized to receive early parenteral nutrition and just the uncertainty about the effect of combining groups across an intervention and how this might impact on the reported outcome. This is really just a comment about uncertainty and uh, was a very uh, smart thing to do, I think, and a very efficient way to evaluate their data. But the whole literature on nutrition and its impact on muscle proteolysis, muscle weakness, muscle repair is still an emerging and not yet definitive work currently. Some other points to consider as well include just the sorts of limitations we encounter when trying to screen and surveil patients in an ICU for something like ICU-acquired weakness. And the inherent challenge in having patients who may not be fully cognizant, may have still a certain degree of ICU-acquired delirium, to fully engage and to fully participate in a, a muscle strength measure that is still going to require effort. And this is always a limitation in, in work like this. To get to your uh, further question about surgical ICU versus medical ICU patients, I think there's no question that surgical ICU patients may represent pre-screened and therefore perhaps in some cases, at least in the non-emergent surgical cases, a less debilitated patient group. I think it's still unclear in the literature whether there really is a, a systematic difference between the surgical and the medical ICU patients. An area of research that's emerging, which is very important and would help to inform this to a greater extent, is some of the work currently being evaluated and led by Jack Washina, uh, some by Hannah Wunsch, really asking the question, what's the nature of the pre-ICU patient trajectory? And I think this really is a very important emerging area of interest. Well, thank you for that, Dr. Herridge. I'd like, Dr. Ehrmans, if you'd like to comment about, obviously, the original clinical trial was studying early TPN and what your thoughts are, how that may have affected your findings. Indeed, all of these patients were included in the EPANIC trial, which was a large randomized controlled trial that compared early PM, which means PM started within 48 hours after admission, versus late PM, where PM was not started in the first week after ICU admission. In both intervention arms, patients received enteral nutrition as soon as possible, and so the caloric deficit was actually tolerated in the late PM group, where it was substituted after 48 hours in the early PM group. And uh, we previously reported indeed that this nutritional regimen actually affects muscle function. We found that patients who received late PM actually had reduced muscle weakness as compared to patients who were randomized to the early PM group. And so, of course, as all these patients were included in this trial, we tried to compensate for this factor by including the randomization arm into the propensity score model. So that's the way we try to cope with this. 
So, Dr. Hermans, I'd like to ask you uh, something you started off our podcast saying uh, it was unclear whether ICU acquired weakness is a marker or mediator of poor prognosis. And I wonder, after you've completed this study and, and reflected on your findings, has that informed your opinion on that matter? So, indeed, I think that the data support that ICU acquired weakness is not just a bystander, but actually contributes to and mediates poor prognosis including acute morbidity, but even more importantly, late death. So I think, indeed, that these data suggest that ICU-acquired weakness actually contributes to the so-called legacy of critical illness. So I'd like to wrap up the podcast with a question for you, Dr. Herridge. Um, and in your editorial, which I encourage the listeners to read, uh, you discuss how there, there's so many factors other than merely weakness that relate to functional independence. And I would want to give you this opportunity for you to describe what you feel are the, the next steps in broadening our focus beyond weakness and what is some of the cutting-edge research in trying to understand long-term outcomes in survivors of critical illness in terms of, one, bench research directed at understanding pathogenesis. I understand there's some people doing it, some of your colleagues are doing some great work, and two, improving our measurement of patient-centered outcomes. I wanted to start off these comments by adding my own thoughts to what Dr. Hermans just said, and I also agree completely with her and her group that ICU-acquired weakness mediates poor outcome. It's not just a marker of poor outcome. And I think when we wrote our editorial, my colleagues, Claudia DeSantos and Jane Bad and I, who've been seeing patients in follow-up clinic really for years and years now, and I, I know that uh, I believe that Dr. Hermans and their group have been as well, that there are so many manifestations of ICU-acquired weakness that we are not, I don't think, paying adequate attention to in terms of uh, diaphragmatic weakness and prolonged mechanical ventilation and difficulty swallowing and problems with aspiration and some of the things that we tried to include in our little case summary to get people to think about all of the ways in which ICU-acquired weakness may be manifesting and we're just not thinking of it in that way. There's no question that many people have contributed important basic science observations and basic science work to the study of ICU-acquired weakness. Dr. Hermans and, and Dr. Vandenberg have been contributing a lot to this area over many, many years now, dating to their important early work published in the New England Journal of Medicine relating tight glycemic control to a decrease in uh, critical illness polyneuropathy and really understanding the cell and molecular effects of uh, glycemic control and, and many other contributors. Perhaps uh, one study that really helped to put the basic science literature and its importance to ICU-acquired weakness on the map was a study by Sandy Levine in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2008 where they were able to teach in a very high-impact journal the relationship between diaphragmatic atrophy and proteolysis with a lot of evidence uh, to implicate the importance of the ubiquitin proteasome system. I think about uh, our own investigators here at the University of Toronto, uh, Drs. Jane Bad and Claudia DeSantos, who are leading their own evaluation of muscle injury and, in particular, muscle repair after critical illness. And their work that may suggest, and we alluded to this a bit in our editorial, that ICU-acquired weakness 
the find in Dr. Hermann's study by MRC may have important phenotypic variability across both muscle mass and contractility, where there may be different phenotypes and this may relate to inherent genetic characteristics or ways in which we are treating patients in the ICU, but emphasizing the point that we perhaps need to separate issues of documenting muscle mass in isolation with documenting muscle contractility in isolation, that there may be various combinations of these characteristics that may lead to a spectrum of weakness phenotype. That is that the recovery after muscle injury may be differential and this is another emerging and important area of interest and research. Now getting to the second point of your question in terms of outcomes and how we should move forward, there's been a real movement in the last few years and many groups internationally really embracing this idea that we need multiple outcomes after critical illness to capture weakness or disability during the ICU in the early phase, perhaps after ICU, and in our longer phase, perhaps closer to one or two years, and understand that there's a spectrum of disability that we need to use a spectrum of outcomes to capture in a meaningful way. I think there's uh, no question this is important, and I have no doubt that many groups, including our own Recover uh, program group here in Toronto and the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group, will hopefully be able to make some contributions to this in the near future. And I think one important consideration going forward is how measures like the MRC, like the six-minute walk test, like activities of daily living or independent activities of daily living, other important patient-centered outcomes like the uh, functional independence measure, which is a common rehabilitative measure that our group and others have adopted, how these interact with each other, and can we find a way to create a pathway where ICU-based outcomes map onto longer-term outcomes, and can those patient-centered outcomes map onto some signals that we already see or can develop in our basic and translational research work. Thank you both for a great discussion. Dr. Hermann's study and both of the accompanying editorials are published in the August 15, 2014 issue of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. You can find a complete archive of the ATS article discussion podcast at the Blue Journal homepage on atsjournal.org or at thoracic.org. In addition, you can get a free subscription to these podcasts by searching the iTunes store for Article Discussions, American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. I'm Nitin Seem, and thank you for joining us today.